welcome to the main course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. And today we're going to be talking about something that most of us have every day, some of us many times a day, and that's coffee. And with me today is Mike McPhail, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of Big B Coffee. So welcome. You know, tell me uh, first a little bit about the Big B Coffee history, you know, where you guys started and how you and how you've grown. Yeah, hi. thanks, Barbara. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. You know, the the, the story on Bigby, you know, we started with one store in East Lansing, Michigan, back going on 27 years ago this month. And, you know, it was it was back when, when coffee was nascent, you know, just getting started. And we decided to franchise the concept. And so, you know, we built a couple stores of our own and then we got into the franchise business model. And, you know, we worked very hard to become the very best franchise company, franchisor that we could. And we've really been been highly focused on that now for, for a long time. Uh, our business model is 100% franchised. So, so every uh, Big B Coffee store out there, independently owned, uh, locally owned. And what we do is we run a business that supports those owners in the development of the Big B Coffee retail system, the brand, and, and then ultimately their business. So why were you so focused on franchising and so gung-ho about it as a vehicle for growth? Well, I, th- I think, one, it was a, a really natural fit for my, my partner and I. You know, we both uh, tend to lean in the direction of, you know, being teachers. You know, we, we, we love working with, with other people you know, as, as partners and, and the franchise business model is, is very much that, I mean, you, you franchise owners locally, they're, they're not your employees. That is for certain. And, and they're independent business people. Most of them come, well, all of them come with some degree of, of success in another, in another uh, arena. They're very experienced people. And we really like that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of energy in a franchise business model that way. And so mm-hmm. I think the fit was, was really good for he and I, you know, from, from, you know, our strengths and what we're good at and so on. And then there's a, a, a bit of a, a story there too. We had a close relationship with Fred DeLuca at the Subway sandwich shop chain, founder of, of Subway. And he, he was a mentor of ours. And we, at one point we did have company owned stores and we had the franchise business model operating. And I think we had nine stores that we were, that we owned and operated. And I think we had about 60 franchise units at that time. And, you know, <laughs> Fred came to us and, and at one point, <clears throat> you know, he, he laid down a, a pretty heavy challenge. He's, he said, Hey, listen, you guys, you're not so good at operating company-owned stores, and and you're you're really not that good at operating a franchise. You probably ought to pick one or the other, you know. And and we knew his opinion. You know, Subway's 100% franchised, and we knew what he was saying there. And 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 so we decided to to heed that advice. Uh, we sold the nine stores, and ever since then, we've been highly focused on uh, franchising. So tell me a little bit about the menu, you know, besides coffee, you know, and the coffee, you know, the coffee is definitely focused, but what is on the menu and what are some of your go-to menu items? Well, we, you know, for many, many years, we built our business on um, one thing and, and that was flavored lattes. And so it was, you know, we, we, we love to refer to them internally as sweet bomb lattes, right? It's the latte with caramel and chocolate and whipped cream on it. And, you know, these things are, they're, they're wonderful, right? And so that was our business. And, and really early on, we had our menu set up very traditionally like 
most other coffee concepts at the time where, you know, the left-hand menu board, which is your premier real estate, as you're, as you're looking at them, the left side menu board is your premier real estate from, from a QSR perspective. And it, in, in the coffee industry, everybody had the traditional Italian drinks up there. You know, you had your cappuccino, you had your latte, you had your macchiato, your compana, right? Like all this stuff that made you a coffee shop, right? And what we realized pretty quickly was that everybody was buying these sweet bomb lattes. And so what we did quickly the first couple of years is moved that board to the left-hand board and really emphasize those as our, as our core product. The other thing that we did that was unconventional is we gave them you know, very fun, energetic names. So, you know, you, you'll, you'll see in our industry, uh, caramel macchiato as a caramel latte, right? <laughs> we went with caramel marvel right? Which is like a superhero flying through the air, Kate flown in the background. You know, we, we have chocolate covered Irishman. We have the wild zebra. We have, you know, so, so we made the drinks very approachable and fun. And instead of going down the path of kind of a pretentious and Italian. Right. So one of the other things you did is you went through a name change really far down in this cycle and you used to be referred to as beaners and and you know what was the process of going through that and and now that you're out on the other side you know what kind of lessons have you learned because that's a big deal changing the whole company name you know so far along so you know kind of what was the process of of wanting to do that and seeing the need to do that and then what have you learned on the other side yeah, well, historically, yeah, most people are probably aware, but you know, beaners was a derogatory term for Mexican Americans, and you know, it it was something that we we obviously weren't aware of originally, right when we formed it. We became aware of it very quickly because people pointed it out to us, and you know, for us, it was something that you know we debated internally for some time, and then it just become became very apparent that. You don't want to have a name that's in any way derogatory towards anybody. And and it was really the right thing to do to change the name. We didn't have any outside pressure. A lot of people build a story around the fact that, you know, somebody must have been threatening to sue us or and, and it really wasn't that. It was it was, you know, my partner and I really settling in on like this, let's just move on from this. And and so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the transition and how to do it. And really what it came down to in many ways was when the customer walked into the store and asked the franchise owner or the employee in the store about the name change, what was the response going to be at that moment, right? Well, how was, how was the customer going to, how are they going to learn about it? What was, what was the, the general tone going to be? And so, you know, it was, it wasn't a small proposition. We, you know, we had, six, I don't even know, 60 or 70 stores at that time. And, you know, changing out the signage was going to be really expensive. You know, all this inventory in the stores, it was going to be expensive to change that stuff out. And, and so in our contract with the franchise owner, they have to pay for a, a change in intellectual property that's written into the contract. And my partner and I spent a lot of time talking about what not only how, but what was the right way to pay for it? And so we, we came up with all kinds of different scenarios, right? We could borrow the money and lend it to the, the franchise owner over some longer term at some reasonable interest rate. Uh, we could just make the franchise owner pay for it. We could do some hybrid of those two things, or we could pay for it. Well, in the process, we we opted to just go ahead and pay for it. 
So we would pay for all of the sign changes, all of the inventory changes and so on. And I look back on that decision and <clears throat> it was crazy because <laughs> it was a huge amount of money, right? It was, it was just shy of a million bucks is what it cost us to do that. And, and we were a tiny company, you know, and, and, and so, but I'll tell you, we were, in, we, we went in front of the, the group to announce the name change and everybody, it was the worst kept secret in the world. I mean, anybody, everybody knew that it was coming. And so we announced it and, you know, it got some, a little bit of polite applause or whatever. And then we started talking about the transition. And at that point we announced how it was going to be paid for, which was Bob and I were going to pay for it hundred percent of it. And then it, <laughs> we had a problem. it was the best idea ever at that point. Right. We did. We, we went ahead and, and, and paid for the entire transition. It was the right thing to do, but also fundamentally the issue was when that customer walked in, that franchise owner was excited about it. Right. They, they were positive. They weren't begrudging the fact that they had to write a $12,000 check to change out their signs. So that was a really key decision that we made. I look back on it. I'm like, holy smokes, we were crazy to do that. But, but in the end, it worked out beautifully. And you know, we, the, the key too to our changes is we didn't change our logo. Our logo stayed exactly the same. So, so our cup had the logo on it. The word underneath the logo changed from Beaners to Bigby. But you know what? It, people associate with imagery there. And, and the fact that we didn't change the logo, I think it was, it was really a pretty seamless, pretty simple transition for people. People didn't make a big deal out of it, other than a few people would call us out for political correctness and so on, which was always very weird to us, like being too politically correct. Like, really? I mean... <laughs> it was always it was a strange conversation for me at that point. You know, we were just trying, we were just being nice. We were just trying to be congenial to the world and say, God, it's it's terrible to have a name that's derogatory. Let's just move on. Let's change it. So in part of that, what you were talking about is, you know, how you support your franchisee partners. So what do you look for in a franchisee partner relationship? And you know, what and what other ways do you do you work with them and support them? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, one of the interesting components to the franchise business model that I've learned over the years is that every franchise owner approaches you from a different experience level and has strong skills in a certain area, but has weaknesses in another. And you, you really don't know that until they enter your world, right? And so when you, when you, decide to develop a franchise, you have to be aware of that. And then when people approach you, you have to be ready for the fact that, you know, some people are going to need zero support in a certain area of the business, but then they're probably going to need a lot of support in another area of the business. And, and no two franchise owners are alike. How do we support them? You know, I think really it comes down to meeting them where they are in the development of their business. And we always have to keep ourselves in touch with the fact that, that we're there to support them in the development of their business. And we need to meet that. We can't expect them to plug into our little programs. And, you know, it, it's really about making sure that our, our business is meeting them where they are. And, and that's, again, it's nuance. It's, 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 in, in no two franchise owners are alike. You know, what we look for, what I tell people in, in I'm dealing with prospective franchise owners and, you know, when they come in, they need it to be a good fit. We need it to be a good fit. Everybody had, you know, in order for it to work, both sides have to feel very comfortable with, with the fit. And what I look for is one, I look for 
enthusiasm, right? Just a, re, a high degree of enthusiasm for the business, for executing it, for what it's going to be like to be in food service retail. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different animal. I mean, anybody that's in the restaurant business knows. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a different animal than, than a lot of other businesses. And so, you know, I look for a high degree of energy, a high degree of enthusiasm. But the other thing I look for is, is for people that are willing to come into our world and, and sink in and learn. And really, I, t- I tell people, take the first two years, treat it like you're going back and getting a master's degree in how to run a quick service coffee franchise. And don't don't worry too much about improving it or what's what needs to be improved or, or you know, we'll get to that down the road. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about that. We want your feedback. You need to be engaged in how to make it better and so on. But really, for the first two years, just commit to learning it. And and then we'll involve you in in all of the you know the, the the iterations and complications of innovating and so on. But but I really look for people that are interested in learning the system, learning how to execute it, and then and then be just come at it with an incredible amount of positive energy. So where are you looking to expand now? And you know and what what do what is it that you say about a location that says this is where we want to be? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're growing in a lot of places. I mean, still our core is what I call the Great Lake states. I mean, that is definitely our core. We've got a very strong presence in Michigan where we were founded. Uh, we have, you know, we've got a, a, a rapidly growing presence in, in Ohio and Indiana and Wisconsin. And so, you know, those, those markets are, are, yeah, that's our core. And then we are working out into some other areas for sure, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know the franchise model is is an unusual model and what i what i mean by that is that we we don't target a market and say hey we're going to go to atlanta and we're going to develop atlanta what we need is we need a strong partner in atlanta taking us to atlanta right and and so you know i i don't know how much detail you want me to go into but really for us of course the marketplace is important you know we have to believe in the marketplace but the the real magic occurs around partnering with the right franchise owner who's going to take us to that market and and develop that market with us and that's that you know we've we've seen that happen in a positive way and then we've seen it happen you know and not work out well and we really want to focus on making sure that those partnerships are strong in the times that it didn't work out well, what were those challenges that you faced? Well, you know, that's my, that's the million dollar question, of course, right? So, you know, I think I've, I've always said there's really three components to a, to a store not working in a new marketplace. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, well, I'll just, I'll just say the three and, and then, you know, it's nuanced. It's not equal parts. I think some pieces play a, a more dramatic role with certain situations than others, but there's a real estate component to it. We have definitely made mistakes on real estate. We're getting better at that, right? As your data points grow, you know, we've got just shy of 300 data points now. And, and so as your data points grow on real estate, you do get smarter. You do understand it better. I think that we're mitigating that risk as we go here more so. And then, you know, we've had some, some issues around capitalization, Right. So, you know, when, when people enter the world and they're not capitalized, how they present themselves to be capitalized, and then all of a sudden they're in a, in a tight spot, that, that is a, that's a, 
that's a toughie, right? And you know, it's it's you know, we we take it face value when you sign that application. You know, we don't go in and, and do a whole bunch of back checking around that. It's if you put it on your application, it, it, we we believe that that's what you have, right? And then the, the third piece is what, what I would say is you know, it's it's a negative, but you know, sometimes we've dealt with some franchise owner immaturity, frankly. You know, and I I could tell you a lot of stories that they just people do some pretty mind blowing things. Uh, and, and, you know, there's things that happen and we've had really, really strong, successful stores that go out of business because, you know, two partners get in a big fight over something or, you know, they, and it, you know, so, so that's the other, that's the other big, the other big piece of it. And, you know, there, there's obviously all of the market forces that occur to right competition and, and so on. I tend not to, to focus too much on those because th- those are frankly a little bit outside of our control. I mean, obviously, you're going to evaluate those before you pick a piece of real estate and you make the best decision you possibly can. But the other three, these three factors are the factors that I think we struggle with when, when stores have closed. So when talking about real estate, what kind of size requirements do you have? Well, we we look at. I mean, my my mo has always been smaller the better. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes that's not possible. But you know, we 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 are we're highly focused on drive-throughs right now. We do we're rolling out a drive-through only concept very very aggressively at the moment. But you know, anywhere from if we're doing a, a site inside of a strip center, you know, we're looking for anywhere from eleven to fourteen hundred square feet, roughly uh, somewhere in there. We'll we'll go smaller if we can. That those are really hard to find, but. That's the that's the general footprint, yeah. So you mentioned that you're you know going through a lot of drive through. Is that something that's been fueled by the pandemic that you've seen that it's it's more of a way that you want to that you want to grow that you see you know more future potential in? Well, we had just just developed and rolled out our first drive through only concept and fall before uh, fall of 2019. So I mean. Actually, it was fall of 2018. So it had been about a year. I think we had three deployed when the when the pandemic hit, and you know the pandemic definitely emphasized drive through. There's no doubt about it. But this this concept was was vetted, and we were working through it pre pandemic. And so when the pandemic hit, and when the the focus became so much on drive through, we were really really well positioned, and you know we I. I don't have the most current numbers, but I think we have around 40 of those under contract being built, ready to be deployed. You know, and, and 40 is a big number when you're a 300 unit chain. I mean, for, you know, it, it's so like we've got a ton of those under development right now. So you talked a little bit about competition and not being able to control it, but who do you assess is your competition and how do you think you compare? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, the competition is anybody, anywhere anybody stops to get a cup of coffee in the morning. Right. So so the competition is convenience stores. It's McDonald's. Clearly, it's Starbucks and Dunkin Donuts and so on. Right. That that's the that's the competitive landscape. So anywhere anybody stops is our is our competition. And how do we compare? Well, one, we from a branding perspective, we're trying to sit in a place where anybody from any one of the concepts I just mentioned feels comfortable walking into our store. So if you're used to walking into Speedway every morning and getting a, a, a vanilla latte out of the, out of the powder machine there, like, okay, you know, you, you walk into our store and, and we, 
are working very hard to make sure you're going to feel comfortable. Similarly, though, if you walk into a, a real high-end local independent or uh, you come from Starbucks, uh, you're going to walk into our store and it's going to feel right to you as well. For, definitely from a product perspective. The product we serve is is a very, very high quality product. We are trying to position that high quality product from a branding perspective in a way that that a very broad swath of the population feels comfortable with. And so, so we're, we don't want anyone ever to feel intimidated walking into a Big B coffee. We want it to be a great experience, a fun experience, and you end up with a cup of coffee that you love, right? And so that's how we look at competition. You know, you look at some of these convenience store applications, they do really, really big volume in coffee in the morning, right? And, and so we want to, we want to work on that group. At the same time, we want anybody who goes into a, a high-end local independent or, uh, you know, a Starbucks to, to also feel comfortable. Right. So, you know, we're still in the pandemic at this point. It feels like, you know, we might be finally coming out, but, you know, restaurants are also dealing with labor and supply chain issues. So how are you kind of responding to all of that? Well, we, we are spending a lot of time, you know, I, I, there is not a short, quick, easy answer to either question. We, you know, we are staying really on top of supply chain and, you know, it, it is something that we have people in our organization that work on it daily and, and stuff pops, pops up out of nowhere. It's kind of like the whack-a-mole game, you know? And so, you know, it, the, the supply chain issues are really complicated. It, in one way, you have empathy for the manufacturers and, and for the distributors, like they're struggling too, you know, it, it, it's a, it, it's a complicated situation out there. I think what we're focused on is our purpose for our company. And, and I, we, I'd have to spend a half hour with you alone on that, but is to, we're highly focused on improving workplace culture in the United States. And, and, and that, that is, that is our purposes is to support you in building a life that you love where I'm going with all of that. And I'm trying to take a, a big topic and boil it down into some small pieces here, but we believe that organizations, companies need to make the environments within their companies supportive and nurturing of their people. And with that, you end up creating an environment where people are attracted to come work for you. They, they love coming to work for you. I always talk about this is this is the topic I spend my life talking about it. I'm actually writing a book on it right now. And it and and the, the concept is you as the employer, you need to invest first. And with that investment in your employee, in that human being, that's how you will end up with loyalty in the end. The days of you know the traditional days of you write somebody a paycheck for them to show up to work and you expect them to be loyal, <laughs> like those days are over, right? We as leaders, we as organizations, we need to do more. We need to create environments that people want to show up to, right? And so, I mean, this is a massive part of the work that I do and the work my organization does. And, you know, to me, the outcome is, is you do end up with your organization being filled with people that that enjoy coming to work, they're loyal to you, and so on. So, so that's how we're tackling that. It's a, it's a, it's a massive endeavor for us. We do all kinds of different things uh, in our world to to make that happen. It's a, it's a passion, passion for me. It's a passion for for our organization. So, when it comes to loyalty, 
how do you engage with your guests to get them to keep coming back? Hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of magic in that. You know, I, I think one of the things that that we do and we're very fortunate in our industry we have a lot of touches right you can see people three five you can see people seven times in a week right so so we have that in our in our industry but but really what what we're trying to do and and we do it well is we want our baristas to engage each person that walks in as a human being and and it's 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 like what how would you treat your your favorite uncle, if they walked into the store, how would you engage them? What conversation would you have? Danny Meyer from what's the, what's the burger joint? Uh, Oh, What's that? Shake Shack. Shake yeah, Shack. Shake Shack. Union, Union Square. Square yeah. yeah. He's got a great book called Setting the Table. Yeah. And it talks about the hospitality, the, the mentality of, of, of hospitality, right? And like, and, and, and it's, it's really about truly caring for that person who walks in, right? And, and engaging them in a way that, that they feel, they feel special. They feel like, you know, you, you care about them as a human being. And, and it, you know, I always, I tell any barista that I get a chance to talk to, like, that's what makes this job fulfilling. Like you, I used to love going to work as, as a barista just to spend time with my customers in the morning and learning about how, you know, the soccer game went last night for their kids or, you know, the state playoffs went for their, for their daughter in, in, in field hockey or whatever it might be. Right. Like, like that to me was, what, why I'm in this business. I mean, I loved that part of the business. And so we just talked to baristas about just being natural with people, just, just extending yourself, asking how things are going, getting involved with people. And so, you know, it's a real opportunity for, for the employees in our stores to connect to the community and, and, and get to know people. And, you know, these are all generally speaking, our employees are, are young and this is probably not going to be their lifetime job. So like, there's no better job in the world than network. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, like you get to see, like, a, like, I remember the quick story. There's a woman, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget her name. Now this is terrible. But she was president of Michigan State University. So, so she used to come in the store every single morning, right? Every single morning. And she would walk in and we'd have a great conversation. I didn't know she was important, right? I had no idea who she was. She was like a provost at that point, whatever. And then one day I opened the newspaper and there she is on the cover when she got named to be president of the Michigan State University. And she walked in and I was like, what? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. This is you, you know? And she laughed and I laughed and we had a great time. And she, you know, it was, it's, that's, those are the opportunities we all have in hospitality that are just magical, right? Right. So one of the things that when people talk about having that kind of hospitality is they go on the technology angle and that technology can't be hospitality or it takes away from the hospitality. So how is technology incorporated into your brand? Well, I mean, we're deep. I mean, we're so deep. It's crazy. Uh, we're making massive investments, you know, investments. If you would have told me five years ago, we would be investing this kind of money in this stuff. I, w I would never have believed you. Right. I mean, it's, it's millions of dollars a year. And, and, and so, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I, I worry about it. I mean, I worry about drive through only and whether we're going to be able to remain, you know, connected to the consumer in the way that we always have been and so on. And, but, you know, I, I think, I think technology is a, is just a tool that, that aids in convenience. 
And so we all want to make our product more convenient to the consumer. We all have to make our product more convenient to the consumer. But, but the trick is, is maintaining that relationship. And, and so how do you do that? And, you know, we've got a lot of things that we're cooking up trying to, you know, make happen in the, in the coming years that, that will allow technology can actually be a tool to allow the consumer to connect not only not only to us as a brand but to each other as a brand and 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 like to me that's there's a lot of value in that and so i i'm not i'm not a techie I, i'm i'm like i just i think i stay in the just maybe on the front edge of the curve on stuff but probably not and and it does scare me frankly i mean i i don't really know where it all goes but i do know this like if we don't stay if we don't stay investing in it and stay on the front edge of the curve on technology we're going to be in trouble but yeah i do wonder about how it's going to impact you know there's these restaurant concepts out there where you you put your order in and and you walk into the store and like there's all these cubbies and you reach into your cubby at 12 38 p.m and there's your lunch and you're gone you don't talk to anybody like I, yeah i mean that's a little because i'm a i'm a hospitality guy right like i mean that's what i do and so how do you how do you have that relationship with that consumer you know i don't know if you do maybe it just becomes a product a commodity that you're selling so what kind of trends in coffee are you seeing you know we are you know cold brew was huge year two three ago are are there new trends in coffee that are coming up that you're seeing or you know has the pandemic affected anything of of what people are ordering you know i i menu mix for for from the pandemic no i don't i don't think we've seen any major shifts there i think we're moving in the direction of bringing a product. We're bringing a product to market. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it or not, but it's 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 focused on. It's very much focused on the 17 to 24 year old, and 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 that that group is is buying very different things. You know, when when you're at Gen X and 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 Boomers, right? Like our menu. That's what our menu is built as, and and. That group, like, I mean, we can't we can't stay there, right? So, yeah. so uh, we hired a, a great firm out of uh, San Francisco called Matson and do product development and research for us, and and they've come up with some really dynamic things for us to be bringing to market. I I don't know if I'm supposed to talk yeah. about. It. I, I I better I better resist <laughs> and not. But I'm really excited about it. We're going to launch it June first. They're doing some product testing last week out in San Francisco with it, and and so, but you know, yeah, the market is changing. It it you know the coffee market is one thing right but what we but what we look at ourselves we're, we're an energy retailer coffee is an energy product where where is that evolving right and so coffee's always going to be a part uh, i mean it, it is it's you know there's no doubt that the coffee is going to be a major force in 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 the energy category but the younger the younger generation the younger groups are coming through and coffee isn't as big a part of what they do as it was for me uh coming through or you know my parents or you know and so uh, you know it's 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 definitely moving in a, in a different direction so you said five years ago you didn't realize that <laughs> you were so being so invested in technology in the restaurant you know where do you see things five years in in relation to your growth and and where you hope to take the brand. Well, you know, we haven't touched on and, and this is a this is a restaurant podcast. So I you know I didn't go deep on the franchising business model, but but you know we are we have a newly developed uh, go to market that 
I think is going to be very, very powerful. And, you know, for us, one of the things that, that I'm trying to make sure we stay focused on is the fact that it isn't going to be a hundred percent drive through. And, and we got to make sure that we're staying on that, especially with the, a greater degree of, of people who are working from home. They, they're going to want to get out of their house. They need to go have meetings places and the coffee shop. It's the perfect place to do that. Right. And so, you know, we're very focused on, on our go-to-market strategy with what's called an area representative. Again, that's the franchising business model specific. So I, I, what I see is I see these and, and when we go to a marketplace, I see a handful, maybe maybe 50% of our stores with seating and drive-through, uh, probably a couple of flagship-type stores that are a little bit more elaborate, provide more seating, and then a whole bunch of drive-through-only stores. And and so, like, I I don't believe that we're going to become a drive-through-only concept. I, I don't believe that. I think it's going to be a mix, and I think you know the the marketplace will dictate that, and and we'll see. But if I had to predict five years out, I think that the drive-through-only is going to be a significant part of our model, but we'll still be doing uh, dining rooms. I believe that people are going to want dining rooms. I don't know if I answered your question at all. But, no, you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. 